This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to episode 137 of the Inked Film Podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week we cover the second half of Ken Kesey's 1962 novel, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So last week we talked about uh, Ken Kesey's bus further and his cross-country road trip and experience he took famously in the 1960s. And uh, I think you have since watched the documentary. Now, it's not the actual Magic Trip documentary that came out in 2011. This is a different documentary that came out in 1999, which talks about that a little bit, but also talks about other things regarding Ken Kesey. I had watched it last week. You watched it since. And I'm really curious to know what your thoughts are on it. I found it to be very interesting just from a documentary perspective, um, getting to interview Ken Kesey and, and learn about the man himself. A lot of the things that you mentioned in the episode were things that stood out to our last episode were, were things that stood out mm-hmm. to me. This sort of the idea that the thing that he thinks leaves his largest legacy is the bus. Um, the idea that he didn't want to give it over to the Smithsonian. A lot, just the, the love that he had for this time. Um, and, you know, being born in the 90s and uh, like early 90s, but being born in the 90s and, and you're, yet Youngin. I still feel I still feel a yearning for for the 60s you know like the love and and it just it just seemed like so much fun and it would seem a lot more innocent and then you know the the documentary talked about a lot of the political upheaval and um, social upheaval that was going on around this time and after for sure so Mm -hmm. I I think just to put all that into context and, and really understand the the artist in this case the writer and then and then think about the story that he wrote and what how how it influenced. And the other thing that I liked was how uh, the book on on the road, I believe it's called, how right, yeah. the, he he sort of wrote the next generations on the road and and like how he talked about how everyone he knew had read on the on the road and mm-hmm. um, seeing a society affected by something like this. Uh, it's it's really cool and I, I enjoyed the the documentary. So you mean like he lived the next generations on the road? Is that what you mean? Or, or are you referring to one flu as, as that? I, I think both, kind of. I, I mean, I guess it's not as direct as something like On the Road. I'm assuming On the Road is about actually like being out and, and you know, living out your freedom on the road. I haven't read it, so I can't tell you for sure, but I assume. <laughs> right, which is what they ended up doing. So I can see like yeah. how that inspired them to do that. Well, and we talked about the Neil Cassidy connection last time. So I'm, I'm assuming you learned a little bit about Neil Cassidy watching that documentary talking about this guy yeah. uh, who drove the bus. Yeah, all kinds of characters. Um, <laughs> I thought it was particularly funny that um, that whenever Hunter S. Thompson was was speaking, like they subtitled him and no one else. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, he's a character himself, and and the parties, the parties that went on, and just thinking about a world with this peace and love and everything when LSD was not illegal. Um, just really interesting perspective that I you know didn't have before. Right. Cool, man. Yeah, I'm glad. It sounds like you enjoyed it. I'm glad you you were able to check it out. Um, In case it's not clear, uh, this is actually going to be a podcast about the second half of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I know I said that in the intro, but um, we're going to get to that. Um, We're going to talk about the the remaining part of the book and um, sort of the messages behind it that we found. Um, But yeah, I did want to kind of revisit 
Ken Kesey a little bit. Um, I do. I know I forgot to talk about one thing that I thought was kind of interesting, um, and that was that he ended up being arrested. Well, well, the police actually came out to arrest him for marijuana possession. They like busted one of his parties, and it was like him and like thirteen other people. But he ended up faking his own death. He left a, like an elaborate suicide note that was written by the Merry Pranksters. And then he fled to like Mexico or something. And I think he lived there for like eight months, came back and then got arrested. <laughs> um, so I don't know if he just like didn't want to stay away and thought maybe he could sneak back in and not get caught. I don't know. The, the, the thing I was reading didn't go into a lot of detail. Um, but it seems like he only served like five or six months. And then um, he ended up moving back to Oregon. And it seems like he had had this like he had been this really sort of notorious figure in California. And then after the arrest, it seemed like he didn't want to, like, it was like the, the heat was too much. LSD was now illegal and he just didn't want to deal with it anymore. And so he moved to, to you know, uh, a, a community called Pleasant Hill, which is actually very small, only population of around 5,000. And he had a family farm there that he ended up living living out his days on. I know when they were interviewing him, he was out in sort of the wilderness of Oregon talking about that, and people would ask him, like, why don't you live in a big city? And he felt very rooted to this area. He felt like it put him in touch with his family and stuff. Um, and it seemed to me that this this marked a change in his life mm-hmm. that, um, I don't know, just seemed significant. And, and I kind of wish they'd ask some more questions about it, or I don't know if he's talked about this elsewhere, but, like, what spurred that change... Um, and, and, um, it, was it just that he, maybe he saw that like his lifestyle was going to end up winding, you know, put him in prison if he kept up with it, you know, and maybe he wanted to back off from that. I, I think the way that the documentary tries to paint it is just that the hippie movement or sort of the counterculture movement that he was a part of had mm-hmm. had gotten out of hand and like uh not because of necessarily the people that he was hanging out with but it was just out of it was out of their hands at that point and it was more everyone was a part of it at that point it felt like and and they started it started to separate from what he maybe wanted it to do and like you say i think i think realizing that it was getting violent in some ways and criminal and very you know it's people die they talked about the um african-american uh man who was beat to death by the by the uh, biker gang, what the Hell's Angels? Son- Hell, yeah. I almost said Sons of Anarchy. <laughs> <laughs> By the Sons of Anarchy. That's a fictional biker gang, and they would never do something like that. <laughs> <laughs> They're good guys, kind of. I don't know. <laughs> so yeah, Hell's uh, Angels, I think I think he, he was like, all right, uh, he was ready to separate himself, like you say, and wanted to go enjoy his time, and uh, didn't didn't want to get too caught up in what was going on and he'd been to prison so maybe that changed him too yeah well another thing that is interesting is that he wrote one flew over the cuckoo's nest in 1962 uh he wrote and released sometimes a great notion which came out in 1964 uh so it came out the year he went on the trip so i wonder how that worked like i wonder if he had like a book coming out in stores as he was off i don't know it seems kind of interesting to me that he would do that um, or was he like, <laughs> like stopping and doing book signings on the way? I don't know. Um, but a lot of the critics uh, I was reading, like a lot of critics actually think that that is the better novel he wrote, that that is his magnum opus. Um, I don't know anything about it, really. Ever since that, he only published one other novel 
Um, well, no, I'm sorry. I'm seeing two other novels. So he published one in 1992. So almost 30 years before he would publish another novel. Um, and that was called Sailor Song. And then he re- released one more in 1994, which was a Western novel called Last Go Round. So I don't know. I mean, he did he did publish some. He released um, uh, collections of essays and short stories in the 80s, uh, one in the 70s. But I mean, really, I wouldn't call this guy prolific. It seems like he he kind of made a splash initially and then um, made this big splash culturally and then really sort of like retreated to his farm and didn't do a ton after that as far as, as writing goes. Um, now, maybe I'm mistaken. You know, he was writing these essays that were being published in different things over time. So it's just interesting to me that he didn't really get back into fiction. Um, and I, And I'm curious why that is. I wonder if he felt like he said everything he needed to say um or if he had trouble coming up with ideas like i don't know i would just be curious to know why why he didn't write a lot more fiction over those years that that 30 year dry spell in in particular stands out to me yeah i feel like from the time that he wrote one floor of the cuckoo's nest to the time that he released anything else he lived a different life you know he went and traveled all around i'm not sure when you know the bus ride falls into sort of his other writing, but he in the documentary even said, you know, like novels are a dime a dozen, but this bus trip was such a such a big deal and felt like it was a huge cultural movement and shift. Yeah. So yeah, I feel like if if his later books are sort of seen critically as like his magnum opus, then um maybe it's due to the experiences that he had and or something, you know, he was I feel like he was a changed person, maybe. I think you're right, but um, the one that is considered the magnum opus came out in 1964, which is the year he took the bus ride. So he would have had to oh, written okay. it before that. Um, right. But I think you're onto it, though. I think you're right. I think he um, he made this shift to being more of a cultural thinker, and maybe he was writing these essays with his like observations about culture. I haven't read them, but maybe he thought himself more as that and less as a novelist, and that was kind of how he shifted his focus, so... Um, that may be true. I know you, you, uh, you're more of a connoisseur, we could say, of documentaries than I am. I feel like you've seen more than I have and studied them more than I have for for sure. So I was kind of curious what your what your take on that documentary was, just in general. And um, do you have any interest in that magic trip documentary that's out? Yeah, I actually did some some digging on that and looking into it. I watched the trailer as well. Uh, it seems like the the newer documentary is specifically the footage that they shot that the people themselves that were on the the magic trip, whatever mm-hmm. whatever for yeah what, that's the name of the documentary I think so right. yeah so they that. they were uh, they were the ones actually filming all of this and so and you know the trailer chopped it up to be like sort of a buried archive of something that they uncovered and it's finally being released to the public kind of thing. Uh, so mm-hmm. I, I'm definitely interested to check that out and, and see sort of, I'm sure there'll be a lot of the same things hit on that we saw in this documentary, but you know, from their perspective. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that does seem interesting, right? To have, it's like told through their own words and their own eyes, mm-hmm. you know, it's, I don't know. There's something, it's like seeing someone take home, home videos in some ways too. Like there's something always in- intriguing about that. Cause you kind of get an insight into what a person thinks is interesting. The person exactly. behind the camera. Who's not a filmmaker necessarily, but is 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 documenting something for some reason. And and a lot of times it's just instinct. Like what was what was instinctually what was drawing their focus at that moment while they're holding the camera. So it's it's very interesting to think about it that way too. Yeah. Hey, you know what we could do? We could watch that as a as a bonus episode sometime. If That'd people cool. are interested in that. 
I don't know if there's any interest in it or not, but I personally, yeah, find it find it somewhat interesting. But anyway, we got a novel to talk about, so let's get into that. Um, I have some summary here that is really focuses more on the very end of the novel. Um, it kind of brushes over the midpoint here a little bit, but I'll read what it contains, and then we can discuss. So last we left McMurphy, he had tried and failed to lift this big panel, but then uh, when when he did fail, he turned around and said to the men, at least I tried, and that was sort of this inspirational thing, right? Afterwards, Bromden opens up to McMurphy, revealing late one night that he can speak and hear. Next, McMurphy organizes an unsupervised deep-sea fishing trip, which results in McMurphy and Bromden being sent to electroshock therapy sessions, but such punishment does little to curb McMurphy's rambunctious behavior. Okay, so this covers a ton. This is like, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, probably the biggest chunk of the novel we read, all all right here. Um, So I'm going to wind it back all the way to the the revelation, actually, um, that he can actually speak in here. I was already intrigued to get bromden's viewpoint and backstory and everything like that in this story and then we we get him speaking to mcmurphy here and getting to see mcmurphy care for him and sort of you know inch him along and help him out as he's as he's finding the confidence to start speaking the focus on bromden i think makes it more interesting to me i you know it's been long enough where i haven't seen the movie but i want to say as far as my memory goes that he's more of a background character and this this is clearly he is basically the main character of this story because hmm. we're in his his first person view sort of I, he he's the main character in the way that uh, Watson is the main character in a Sherlock Holmes novel um, because it's it's Watson observing Sherlock and here it's Bromden observing McMurphy um, and, and, you know, he's giving us this, this vantage point, but, but I mean, McMurphy's the main character. And I think it makes sense that the filmmakers would, would shift the focus to McMurphy, um, because it doesn't work as well, uh, in a film as it does in, uh, you know, on the page, but just focusing in on the book, one of my main takeaways from this novel and other people may disagree with me, but I, I kept feeling like this novel is extremely symbolic it's very metaphorical. It's trying to say something. Mm-hmm. I think partly because I know about the man a little bit after reading about him. Like I know that he was very concerned with like culture and society and people's places in it. And so I was very aware of that going in. And I'm reading all these things. I'm going, this is he's trying to say something here. So with that in mind, you have this character who can't speak or who is faking that he cannot speak and cannot hear. Um, and then we get the revelation where he says, I started doing it because people were already treating me as if I couldn't speak or hear. Um, and so it was kind of like he embraced the role that society was already placing onto him. Mm-hmm. Um, and then McMurphy is pulling him away from that. Um, so what what are they trying to say there, I guess, is the question. If everything's like sort of a metaphor and a symbol, like what what is that saying? To me, the the main the main sort of metaphor of the of the story is of society right and what society what society does to people um whether it's ignoring them in this in this situation or thinking thinking uh putting them in a box like like bromden like i think he said everybody thought he was too stupid um Mm -hmm. so that's why he started you know acting the way he did by by not speaking because people felt that he wouldn't have intelligent answers or whatever um so i think that that that's for me like the overarching theme of what i've what i felt through the novel um you know, the symbol of which, you know, again, to, to hit on this, 
is kind of I, I don't really understand what what um Kesey was trying to say with specifically the women characters we should revisit that in a second but this idea of yeah of um you know society like sort of the institution being society and them telling you what to do and rebelling against them is showing your freedom and individualism um and which which is sort of what mcmurphy represents but then there's a whole lot like you said in the last episode i, I really agree with how you brought up mcmurphy sort of and every character really making freedom and and masculinity sort of the same thing one and the same yeah uh it played through a lot in the second half for sure it, it continued to be a major factor and it and it, if it had just been mcmurphy i would think he's trying to say something with that character but it wasn't it was a lot of it was basically all of the characters mm-hmm. yeah no and i agree because i kept wanting for it to not be true like i kept i kept wanting to separate and say like Maybe it's just a character or maybe, you know, maybe I misread it and then he would double and triple and quadruple down on it, doing things that just kept underscoring that point to me, um, which we can we can get to. But to focus back on Bromden, um, I, I both liked this and found it a little a little uh, off for me. Um, the things I liked was the idea of a character who is sort of embodying what society has done to him and how uh, McMurphy is able to pull him out of that. And he has been treated as if he can't, has no voice. And so now he has no voice. He's been treated as if he is small and he, and he thinks that he is physically small. That is part of his sort of, you know, pathology Mm -hmm. that he believes he's small. And McMurphy convinces him that he's going to build him back up again into a full sized, you know, person. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I think I liked that. Um, the one part that I found really troubling was the, uh, there was a section where uh, Bromden is looking at McMurphy and he says, he's like, I don't have the exact quote, but he says he doesn't he doesn't w- let the way he look affects affect who he is. And he starts thinking about how like he looks like he's this wild man and he doesn't let that affect him. And he, he's, he's like admiring McMurphy for not letting the way he looks uh, affect who he is and i i was just thinking how rich it was for a white man to be writing a novel with a person of color as the main character the thought the, the pov character looking at another white man and admiring that white man for not letting the way he looks affect who he is and i just thought oh my i just couldn't do it man it was like mm. I, I you just can't it it felt so loaded like it felt so so much like he was trying to say that everyone should do that. If McMurphy can do it, you can do it too. And just the idea that those experiences are somehow similar is ridiculous on the surface, as we well know, right? right. Like, it's just like not like without any any sort of experience with or or acknowledgement of privilege, right? It's like it, exactly if, if you're looking at if you're looking at it that way, it's because you've never been in a position where you're oppressed in the way that someone like Bromden would have been. Yeah, and and just the idea that he wrote this character to be so at like have so much admiration for this white man for this reason. That one line just stu- it just rubbed me the wrong way. I mean, there are other lines that did too, um, which we'll get to. Um, but I, I'm going to try and be even-handed with this. I, I, there was a lot I liked. Um, I I continue to try and give some benefit of the doubt. Um, because, you know, many things from the sixties are quite dated. I was just, I was reading a thread recently about Disney animated films 
And I was being reminded of how many of these were coming out around these times and how a lot of it has not aged well. (laughs) And you know what I mean? Like, so it's like a lot of this stuff from this time period. It's not like I'm trying to forgive it for that, but I'm also, I want to give it the context of the larger, you know, society um, that a lot of stuff from this time period just hasn't aged well. So it, it seems like he was trying to create this, um, postmodern work where it is largely uh, metaphorical and and the characters within the novel seem to know that it is a metaphor and I think that's one of the things that makes it kind of postmodern there's often times where characters will say like this this is our last this is our last hurrah tomorrow's going to be doom and like that's true mm-hmm. and uh, you know it's like they're almost aware that they're in a story it's not quite deadpool levels you know what i mean but it's just playing a little bit with the like they kind of are aware they're in a tale at times, or they say things that kind of seems like maybe they are aware of it. Um, and I say, I think that's when he's kind of toying with this postmodern idea. And um, that's all cool, but I, I, I really think the fatal flaw of this novel for me is how, how it gets muddied and it gets ent- entangled with um, gender politics, honestly, with, with masculinity being equated with freedom and everything that is like good and what you should strive for as it and, and like living free and then femininity is either tied to oppression or put in a box of of being a sexual object and the only characters that we see the only women that we see that are like that people like in the book that the men like in the book are the ones who are prostitutes and who are there for sex and don't challenge their authority. Um, and, you know, and it comes up over and over again. So, I mean, it's kind of, a, I feel like I'm on a soapbox, and I, and I know that, like, I'm a white dude, het white dude, and I'm sitting here, you know, talking about things that it's not really my place to talk about. So I'm a little bit uncomfortable with it, but um, I also, I don't know, I just feel like I have to bring it up. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where I'd be, I wouldn't be, wouldn't be honest. I think it just com- it comes from our modern sensibilities. It's like if we're if we're reading something, we're gonna well, and, to- and progressive sensibilities. Let's be honest. Yeah, because there are plenty of people these day and age who would not agree with us out there. Just look at the internet. If you're reading something, you're usually gonna put it in the context just naturally of whatever your modern sensibilities are. So when you read when you read something like this, you're you're sort of putting that on it as well. You know, I, I think it's clear that Kesey was trying to bring up some some progressive points and bring up some things that people weren't thinking about and try to do good um but like you say it's unfortunate it just it gets muddied and ultimately i think i think there is a powerful story in here whether like like on a meta level the metaphorical level as well as the actual characters and what they go through and the sacrifices that are made and things like that another thing with bromden that i wanted to touch on real quick was just this uh just another example of the the oppression by by women and that's when he's flashing back to how his mother would treat him and like berate him and his father and uh, how he kept talking about turning, it would turn them into like lesser men. Well, and she, it was her name that they took and not his name. And so he was emasculated in that way too. Right. Right. Yeah. So that's just another example of, of the female oppression. There there are so many, honestly. And I just don't know like what woman wronged Kesey for him to be this, this antagonistic (laughs) Towards, well, towards these so women characters. That's an interesting point because I was trying to think back um, and I know in different periods in time there were women's organizations that were like think about the satanic panic of the 80s 
Mm -hmm. A lot of that were driven by sort of like PTA mothers who were having this like Christian panic about Satan and their children being perverted by it. Mm -hmm. And I could see a place where if Ken Kesey was pushing back on society and trying to say free love, you know, get away from religion, get away, maybe not religion, but like the puritanical aspects of religion and trying to say like break out of your bonds and 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 rethink the way you can live i can see a situation where he's equating that i don't agree with this but i could see him equating that with sort of you know like the wives who are meddling um out there and and are forming committees and are you know lobbying the government to have things shut down like i it's weird because like I don't agree with this, right. but I can see that maybe this was something he was in his day to day dealing with, and he thought that maybe it was more indicative of a larger problem than I think it is. But um, I don't know. It's like it's I think it's a it feels like he's trying to speak to a certain kind of woman that he doesn't like. Um, but what's unfortunate is the only other kind of woman we see in this book are, are literally prostitutes who are there for the sexual gratification of the characters. And those are the only women that are treated as if they have any value yeah. in this story. And, and I know this is jumping literally to the end, but the idea that when they finally best the big nurse or ratchet, it's, it's through sexual aggression. Assault. Assault, Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a sexual assault. He rips her her blouse open. I'm just saying, like, yeah. uh, it's through aggression. Like, it's through it's through domination. It's through something. You know what I mean? It's through something that's clean. Seen as clearly masculine in a sort of, um, you know, archaic way. That again is driving home the point that like like what is he trying to say with that you know what i mean to to yeah. beat someone like, like, like no i think there's a lot to unpack there honestly and since you brought it up i think we got to touch on it a little bit we're gonna be i guess we're gonna be all over the place chronologically yeah. in this story but um that moment was definitely a um he was it, you know how you hear about like you know sexual assault let's just say let's just stop there <laughs> um is about dominance right it's not about like something else right it's not about horniness or something it's about it tends to be about dominance and this is a clear example of that right like he is trying to say to her in that moment you are not in control you don't have power you're just a woman and i'm going to expose you for the woman you are and to me that was exactly what that that scene was and i hated it (laughs) um you know what i mean like you're besting the villain sure but why do that and let and that was just that gross like Every time there was a moment where I really wanted to um, cheer for McMurphy and get behind it, it was always paired with this thing I just don't like. And 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 I don't know. It's it really really fucked with my ability to enjoy this novel just across the board, honestly. Yeah, and it and again, it how much does that numb that sacrifice that he makes too? The ultimate, yeah. like the the final. I feel less bad for him is what I'm trying to say at the end. Mm. You know, like I, I don't like, and maybe that's the mixed feeling that Kesey was going for, but it, it didn't work for me. But it just it made me not feel mixed. It made me feel like I just no, because it, and then the implication is that he put her in her place, and then when she comes back later, she's weakened, right? And she can't face them anymore because she's been she's been brought down right. by him. Pretty pretty rough stuff. Just overall, it's it's pretty yeah. It, it makes it hard to to be like oh this is such a such a great novel to think about it in those terms now because it's just it doesn't it really, really and i can totally see people reading this and not picking up on that um i i think that it's you know especially guys 
Like, I, there's a time in my life where I could have read this novel and I wouldn't have realized what was going on like that. You know what I mean? Like, I right. wouldn't have thought about it in that Well, way. toxic masculinity, it's just that, yeah, it's when you, when it's ingrained like that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when, when you grow up around it and you're surrounded by it and you and you haven't, you haven't, like, thought about it in that way, thought critically about it and, and taken steps to be better, um, you can be blind to it. And I think I would have been um, had there, had I read this novel, you know, I don't know, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm maybe sooner i don't know um so uh, you know i'm saying that with that caveat but let's let's get back into the actual plot because we're skipping over a lot that happens um this fishing trip i think further backs up my idea of of the metaphors right because even okay so we have to first touch on this is when candy the, the prostitute is sort of first introduced it's uh the the doctor who's sort of the emasculated uh, doctor from the mental institution comes along with the men he's kind of one of the men who's also been been emasculated by M- nurse ratchet in this in this way so he comes along they go out fishing they get on this boat there's this bizarre sequence where uh candy like grabs the pole and then like she also is bared and um because of the because of her like shirt coming open and then like everyone's laughing and it's this kind of surreal moment and it was like this celebration of it too though and it was very much me seeing this was very this is this felt very much like a free love moment in a way or he was trying to make it that Mm -hmm. like we should all just celebrate this and um but it was also kind of gross because it was this one woman and all these guys and she's a prostitute and i don't know it just it, it, it got muddied for me um i guess i have more i want to talk about with the boat but you want to react to that at all Thoughts yeah i mean it yes i think that clearly you can see from the documentary and everything that the way that he thought of kesey thought of sort of free love and and all of the you know love who you love um you know it, sex sexuality and sex don't have to be so puritanical and very like reserved and sort of like something to be seen as um you know a taboo it's it's something to be embraced um so like i understand him coming from that point of view but like you say with it's just it's just a lot of men who especially and even within the story he has who are have power over her so it just feels you know dirty it feels it feels gross uh yeah i mean i i think there's more we could unpack there but i I don't want to linger too much on this. I, this is something I'm going to be, you know, we're going to talk about more as we go. So let's move on. There is another part that I think is interesting, though, and that is when the doctor lands this giant fish, which as it's coming up, it's pale and it's coming up to the boat and it's this immense flounder. And I don't know if you remember last week we talked about the Moby Dick connections, right, with mm-hmm. uh, McMurphy wearing the white whale underwear so I kept thinking, like, okay, so this this means something. Um, McMurphy doesn't help, even though he, people keep calling for him to. And then at the last minute, he sort of like hooks a gill and he helps pull it in. Um, and then uh, it, it this is a moment that like transforms the Doctor in some ways. It seems like he's reclaimed something in this sort of man versus nature struggle in which he succeeds. And it seems like he's emboldened by McMurphy, like as everyone yeah. is around him. And what everyone keeps looking to him yeah. like like masculine he represents within the story masculinity and so he him sort mm-hmm. of getting some of his confidence back because he's not under the thumb of nurse ratchet and and he's you know done something for himself and it's a big accomplishment and in the eyes of all the other men around him and that's that's the acceptance he was he's looking for let's talk about the the fact that they stole this boat as well um yeah they they just took off with it i guess in the 70s maybe 60s maybe it was it was 
possible for something like this to go on with one doctor sort of just like taking these patients on a boat but i found this to be really tough to i don't know i I was just surprised that there was any situation where they'd be able to take these patients who sometimes can't take care of themselves fully have medical issues to have seizures things like that and then take them out on a on a deep sea fishing trip with one doctor yeah and a prostitute and yeah. A, yeah it just yeah it was, <laughs> yeah it, it's it was pretty weird right like yeah I, I i guess i didn't think about it over much but you're right that probably does seem unlikely um but one thing that's interesting with that i, I wanted to point out is when they get back to the dock the men who had been catcalling and who they they sort of were ashamed that they didn't stand up to now have like admiration for them because they see the fish that was caught uh, i think and they see the way that they like park the boat and so now they've won these guys these guys is like admiration and so they're no longer adversarial with them um even the i think even the captain uh wants to go get a beer with them after they fight it out right something right like after that. they fight it out yeah him and mcmurphy so yeah what, what, what do you think that's trying to say like a show of masculinity maybe yeah i think i think it's backing it's backing that masculinity play up again and saying that like the way that you you get respect uh, impress other men is by doing masculine things and being strong and then they'll have respect for you i right? think bromden also catches a, a big fish right and that, that kind of builds his confidence oh, and, a and lot of them mcmurphy yeah. mcmurphy talks about how like he grew 10 inches that day and and keeps talking about mm-hmm. how he's becoming such like a bigger man um, the whole becoming a bigger man and being a half man thing is really interesting to me. I just I was I was surprised at how often it was brought back up. Well, and I I like that part because it was very much like he imagines himself to be the size that society has made him. Right. I think that's interesting. I think that's a good idea. Um. Again, I just wish it wasn't <laughs> tied to masculinity. Surrounded by this, all this yeah. other stuff that was muddying the waters for me. But before the 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 um, deep sea fishing. McMurphy actually backs off from everything he's doing because he learns that a lot of the people there aren't committed, but he is. And he he knows that he he learns that it's going to be up to the nurse to allow him to be released. And so he actually has a while where he stops doing anything. Mm -hmm. He starts playing the game Um, and everybody notices this and starts to turn on him a little bit. Right. Well, and there's the moment that eventually, because, you know, he was the the heart and soul of this sort of confidence building that these all these patients were feeling, um, they go to like a pool at one point and one of the patients swims down to the bottom and like holds onto a grate and drowns himself. I think the the character's name was Cheswick. Right. So Cheswick, they're at this pool day. Everyone's there. And um, around this time, I think McMurphy's talking to a lifeguard and he sort of starts to realize um, the situation that he's in and loses his confidence and people who saw him as this beacon specifically Cheswick um, get disheartened by this and I think that's part of the reason why Cheswick swam down to the bottom of the pool and held onto the grate and um, ended up get, ended up drowning and it seems like he he did it on purpose it seems like he he killed himself yeah there's some implication that it is suicide although I think it also says that his fingers were stuck so tough to say but um yeah i mean i think it's it's at least tied on a story level to he failed like mcmurphy fails him and then he dies and i think this is one of the things of uh, you know of a couple things that spur mcmurphy into going like resuming his action um and he he ends up uh breaking the glass he puts his hand through the glass in the nurse's station 
Um, and that's sort of his like arrival back into being who he was. Mm-hmm. Um, and he and I thought it was an interesting d- doubling down moment for the character because it was like he didn't really grasp the full stakes. This is also when he learns about lobotomies. Right. Um, and so I think it's like the stakes are fully presented to the character now. And then he is forced to choose again to continue to do the things he's doing despite the stakes, um, which is further solidifying him as sort of a martyr character. Mm-hmm. Um, which the novel lampshades the hell out of by having Nurse Ratched repeatedly say, like, you know, he's trying to be a martyr, and, you know, do you think of him as a martyr? Do you think of him as a martyr? And, um, again, that's kind of the postmodern thing in there, where it's like it's like drawing attention to the very thing that it is clearly doing. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, so uh, another weird side story that happens is they stop by his old house uh, out in the country, and then he tells a bizarre story about the first time he ever had sex when he was a very small child. Yeah. And again, it was a very presented in like a gross way. Well, it's like, uh, it was like a bragging moment. Like it was like a good thing. Yeah. And, and it seemed like their, their age, how young they were and how young she was even, even com- in comparison to him. And it was, yeah, it was, it was definitely, it was tough to read. Yeah. To be honest. Yeah. It was, it was, it was yeah. and like the idea that, that he's like flying this flag of her dress. Yeah. On the her tree dress that is like never, a flag. It's, yeah. it's a lot. Yeah. But this is what I'm saying. Like, so if, if it's been a while since you've read this book or you've never read it, like we're not making this up. <laughs> like this is this is in the text. Like I swear to you. Well, yeah. I mean, just to and if you haven't read it, just so you know, it's like I, I think they're like ten years old, and she's like eight or nine or even younger yeah. or something like that. That's and he, pretty yeah. gross. Like uh, on and any the way level. he's re- referring to her as an adult is gross. Exactly. Yeah. And and again, it's just doubling down on this, like the way he views women and the way he view. But it's also like it's like he doesn't care that. It really feels like he doesn't care about the person and i think that's key in all these situations he doesn't care about this woman and he doesn't care about the woman he's talking to he doesn't care about candy what he is actually doing is equating the act of having sex and being with these women and all of that with freedom and with being alive and with being a man and all of these things are one and the same and so i think that's also key to understand uh, like what he's going for whether or not you know you agree with it. That's what he's trying to do, I think. So let me read a little bit more summary. Oh, we, oh actually, when we got to the end of this, they, they are about to receive their electroshock therapy. That happens because they are being washed down to like clean off the, the trip from them um, by the orderlies. And they're cleaning them out. I thought it was very pointed that they also were bending over and spreading their cheeks for these, you know, you know, uh, African-American orderlies, um, again, very loaded um, and very emasculating, again, for, for these characters. Um, and then they, uh, this one character um, won't be, he does not want to be touched. This is like a big thing for this character. And they insist that he has to have it to happen. Um, and this is, uh, this is too far for both Bromden and McMurphy, who end up getting in a fight and breaking the arm of one of the orderlies, and and a big scuffle ensues, and then they get sent to Disturbed, the Disturbed Ward, to get their electroshock therapy. Right, and I guess this is a moment where it is like, if if there is someone who doesn't want to be touched in this way, and like there's nothing that can be done, like you can understand McMurphy and and Bromden's sort of point of view in this situation. Um, And, you know, it's loaded because of all the sexuality stuff that we've been talking about. 
and you know the the sort of emasculation like losing of masculinity um but at the same time this character you know runs in to save the day again and and like once and then afterwards they're all cheering and they're all happy for him and and you know that that but that's the last straw that's when they're sent for their shock therapy and this is when we get this gallows humor I can see people really connecting with that we skip from a McMurphy because he has this line earlier in the novel about how the only thing you can do is laugh at the things that bring you pain. Like it won't make them not hurt, but you just have to laugh at them. Right. Um, and, and he, then he then lives that with this electroshock stuff where he's cracking jokes. He's asking for a cigarette. He's like, Oh, shouldn't I be blindfolded? You know, he's doing all this stuff. He's acting like they're going to execute him. And then even after the initial electroshock happens, he has to keep going back for it. He keeps joking about it like it's no big deal. You know, he says they're powering him up and like all that. He has all these jokes. He's cracking about it. But at the same time, when when they call for him to go, I think because we're in Bromden's point of view, Bromden realizes can see like a sort of a gauntness in his face and that he doesn't yeah. want to go back. And it is it is tough. Right. For it's, him. It's, it's it's an act. Right. Clearly. But but that doesn't I guess that doesn't make it less powerful. It just shows that he's not actually superhuman. <laughs> like, he is being affected by it. Right. Well, I mean, it, it would. It, I think it's to the character's benefit, right? I think it's because exactly, it's showing yeah. the strength of the character and how, like you say, living what he what he says and, and like, s- s- laughing through this and trying to be strong for the other characters. Yeah. Okay, so now I'm on to, finally, the next, the next bit of summary. So one night, after bribing the night orderly, McMurphy smuggles two prostitute girlfriends with liquor onto the ward and breaks into the pharmacy for codeine cough syrup and an unnamed psychiatric medicines. McMurphy persuades one of the women to seduce Billy Bibbit, a timid, boyish patient with a terrible stutter and little experience with women, so he can lose his virginity. Although McMurphy plans to escape before the morning shift starts, he and the other patients instead fall asleep without cleaning up the mess of of the group's antics. And in the morning, the morning staff discovers the ward in complete disarray. Nurse Ratched finds Billy and the prostitute in each other's arms, partially dressed, and admonishes him. Billy asserts himself for the first time, answering Nurse Ratched without stuttering. Ratched calmly threatens to tell Billy's mother what she has seen. Billy has an emotional breakdown, and once he is left alone in the doctor's office, commits suicide by cutting his own throat. Nurse Ratched blames McMurphy for the loss of Billy's life, and enraged at what she has done to Billy, McMurphy attacks Ratched, attempting to strangle her to death, and tearing her uniform, revealing her breasts to the patients and aides who are watching. McMurphy is physically restrained and moved to the disturbed ward. Okay, so there we go. This is, you know, in a little bit more detail, some, one of the, the culminating scenes, which we already touched on a little bit with what happens at the end with McMurphy, but I think it's interesting that, 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 there, that there is a drug-fueled night of debauchery here <laughs> you know right. considering ken kesey's life that we've heard about um this is certainly things he knew something about um so it, it plays a very prominent role in this novel um taking a bunch of drugs having fun you know living um i i think the it's again worth note that the women who are taking part in this party are the only women in the book that seem to have any value to anybody um, he's basically saying, you know, that's, that's the, 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 the sort of, the sort of messaging behind that is like, be like these women. Don't be like Nurse Ratched. <laughs> yeah. And, and it all leads to this final confrontation between McMurphy and Ratched where, you know, he goes too far and tries to strangle her, but, and then there's also the added layer of the sexual assault, um, which I don't know. It's, it's again, it's taking something that could have been 
Um, maybe, maybe, I don't know. Maybe it's not for me. Maybe, maybe I don't align with the message of this novel and maybe that's the problem. Um, but it feels like it, it just like complicates things in a way that I'm just not comfortable with. So this is sort of a scenario that Kesey almost lived out as well, I think, because of his experience, uh, like he working in a working in an institution like this and, and like breaking into the drug cabinets. Right. Wasn't that sort of implied in the documentary? No. Oh, maybe. Yeah. I, I don't remember in the documentary if it said that, but he definitely was part of the MK Ultra where he where he volunteered to take LSD. Right. And all that stuff. So, yeah, I, I guess, you know, having that be a part of all of this is is interesting. Uh, it. it you know, even though all of this stuff has gone on, it still breaks my heart that there there was a moment when the, like a lot of them could have escaped together and, you know, maybe all run off together. And but because of the party and because they were too overzealous, they, they weren't able to make it out together. And so I wanted to ask, because to me, this felt like a postmodern moment. Um, but what was your take on that? Like, did, did was McMurphy aware of his choice? Did he make the choice to stay? I see. Did, was he a martyr on purpose is what you're asking? To, exactly. to motivate these people i, I or, think so or, or for or, whatever for whatever reason did he stay behind i think so for that reason like you know as much as i don't agree with how the methods that he ultimately uses to do it and everything he i think he realized that what he wanted to do was give these people who felt that they didn't have anything they felt like they were trapped he wanted to give them the confidence to go do something with and get out of there, especially knowing that a lot of them could leave voluntarily. Um, and I think that, I mean, I think that he did make the decision on purpose to push it and push it and push it. I think when he recommitted himself, he realized that lobotom- being lobotomized wasn't, was something that could potentially be happening. Which is scary, man. Cause that's worse than death in many ways, right? Like just cause it, I mean, yeah, we'll get to it, but he's he's left in this state where he is just no longer himself and he is just a complete vegetable i mean mean, in in this novel and in the way it's presented that's what's happening um and to face that is just utterly terrifying to me and um yeah i think he chooses it he realizes that he's failed he's failed them in the past where he uh didn't follow through or he got scared and he started thinking about wanting to be released and he knows that in this moment he could escape, but if he does that, then that is he he feels like maybe that is not following through or that is not going to provide the example that he wants to that he does want to provide. Um, so yeah, I think he chooses it in this moment. And again, I think it's kind of a postmodern moment where I think he realizes fully what kind of story he's in, and he he's like, I'm the martyr in this story, and I need to stick around and follow through. And, you know, have you seen my aces and eights tattoo? I'm gonna die. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And he also has been sort of training Bromden to 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 stage a breakout. Like he's he's been having him work out by lifting that that stuff and like build up to his former strength from when he was in his prime. So. You know, I think he's giving them the option. I think he's leaving the door open for and giving them the motivation, um, which we see is the case. So, so there, I'm just remembering another moment, and like it sucks because I feel like I've harped on this enough, but it's just it's just more evidence. Okay, there is another woman character who is a nurse in in the disturbed ward that they interact with. And while she's talking to them, she says one of the most misogynistic things I think said in the entire novel, which is full of misogynistic things. She says, and I wrote this one down, quote, I sometimes think all the single nurses should be fired after they reach 35. Yeah, I remember this. Yeah. (laughs) 
out of fucking nowhere, implying that the problem with all of the other nurses is that they are single and over the age of 35, and it makes them into some sort of, like, evil, like, harpies. Well, it has something to do with, like, it's attached to, like, sexuality, like, not having enough sex or not having a child. Because they're not married. They're not, yeah, they haven't followed, they haven't fallen into this, which like, come on, Ken Kesey, you're talking, you're like talking shit about these 500 identical homes and people living identical lives. And then you're going to imply that women need to be married and over the age of 35 or there's something wrong with them and they shouldn't be in positions of authority because there's something wrong with them. Yeah. It's just a weird viewpoint. Like I, like I said, it seems it seems vindictive. Like it just seems like he had something, some hill he wanted to die on for this, for this. And I, yeah. I just felt like he was very much making it clear. It wasn't subtle, really. You know, when it when it came down to it, it's all over no. the place. It's funny because like it's like I don't think I'm like the best person in the world for finding metaphor. Uh, you know what I mean? Like there's I, I watch videos all the time from people, and I'm like, oh, that's amazing that they found that thing. I I would have never thought of that. So I don't think I'm like cutting edge finding hidden metaphors. You know what I mean? Like. It has to be pretty obvious for me to really pick up on it sometimes, unless I get lucky. <laughs> and this stuff, I, I feel like it was just really obvious that this was the message to me. Well, I, you actually just made me think of something. There's another metaphor that's built up in this story, and it's sort of the the fog. It's all of Bromden's visions and, and the way that he sees the mm. fog and he sees the machinery of of the institution. And I felt like it came to a head with this last section. And I think the institution represents society. And there's like a line that's given somewhere where the combine, yeah, yeah, the combine. And there's the, there's a line that's given somewhere where this like sort of um, being mentally ill, you could potentially use that power to your advantage in the way that Nurse Ratchet does. You remember one of the characters says that I think like near the boat trip, so one of the characters says this, mm. and then they bring up Hitler. Well, there is a yeah, I think Harding Harding says that yeah, and at, they, at one point he says like there's a power to to being perceived as mentally unstable. Yeah, like Hitler, which is a weird comparison, but okay. But it got me thinking about <laughs> how, you know, comparing Nurse Ratchet to Hitler and this idea that the institution represents society and the way that, you know, they're saying Nurse Ratchet could potentially be mentally ill, but just be the be the person who's making the decisions on who is and is not mentally ill. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a good point. Being in a position of power, like who's to say, and I think that's the, the metaphor that she Casey, does seem to have a a a a pathological need for control right yeah. like she she does as presented need like absolutely require subjugation and control over all of these people the metaphor i think kesey was going for is you know think about who your leaders are and think about the fact that they could potentially be in some way insane or mentally ill like somebody like hitler because that comparison is drawn and you know if mm. they are and they're saying that you are insane or mentally ill, then, you know, whoever's in power is determining, like, who is who is on the right side of the fence. Who's on the outside and who's on the inside. Right. Yeah. Yeah, man, I don't know. I I struggle to imagine a world where we have a a president who has some sort of mental illness. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's a real stretch. (laughs) That sounds like science fiction. Um, we do get, I, I wanted to say we got a little bit of a culmination of the, um, hallucinations mm-hmm. when he goes to the, get the electroshock therapy because Bromden also gets shocked and, uh, he, but he first witnesses McMurphy get it done to him. And, um, the way it was written was, was, you know, I liked it, you know, and it was, there was like, it was blurring the lines between what was real and what isn't. There was at one point, there's a bunch of birds on a line that get shocked to death when 
McMurphy's getting the electro shop. And mm-hmm. that was one of those situations where I was like, did that really happen? Or is that something you imagined? You right. know what I mean? Like there's, there's a couple of these things. I liked the way he's blending it. There's the fog, you know, and it, the it machinery, was, was the machinery is like, it's implied like they're, they're like robots. Like there's a lot of robot things that are going yeah, on here. Robot like hands and, stuff. and the idea of like a, the agency of a robot or lack thereof, you know, the idea of individualism and stuff is in there. I feel like, well, and he's, he's having these flashbacks when he goes in of, of his childhood and he's remembering, um, he remembers the phrase, he who walks out of step, hears another drum, um, which I feel like I've heard versions of that saying, um, and it, it kind of goes with what you're saying about like, you know, hearing another drum, being different and, and being punished for that. Um, and then he, he remembers this story, it's kind of bizarre story about his father, um, his father's mother dies and then is buried, but then his father digs, like breaks into the cemetery to dig her up and then hang her body somewhere. And then he gets arrested for it. Um, and I guess it's supposed to be some sort of tradition, um, for, for whatever, um, Native American tribe he, he is a part of. And the, the authorities say, you know, where's the body? Where's the body? And then he says, you know, in some tree somewhere, you'll basically you'll never find it. Um, and I don't know. I mean, it's interesting that he's having this this memory of this whole situation as he's going in for the electroshock. Um, and this is also where we get the nursery rhyme um, where the cuckoo's nest title comes from. One goes east, um, one goes west, one flew over the cuckoo's nest, something like that. Uh, yeah, essentially, it's it's talking about um, so I'm talking about these geese and how they split. One goes east, one goes west. One flies over the cuckoo's nest, and then it takes one out. It like takes you out of the cuckoo's nest. Mm-hmm. Um, I think pointedly, and so me to me, this is uh, McMurphy, right? Like he is the he is a goose that came to the cuckoo's nest and rescues Bromden, mm-hmm. or he winds up rescuing Bromden, takes him out. Um, because that's what we're about to get into the final part of the book here. So I guess I'll go ahead and read this final summary. But um, when I read that and and then um, I was thinking about it as I read the rest of the book and how it, how it connected. So Nurse Ratched mi- misses a week of work due to her injuries, during which time many of the patients either transfer to other wards or check out of the hospital forever. When she returns, she cannot speak and is thus deprived of her most potent tool to keep the men in line. With Bromden, Martini, and Scanlon, the only patients who attended the boat trip left on the ward, McMurphy is brought back in. He has received a lobotomy and is now in a vegetative state, rendering him silent and motionless. The chief smothers McMurphy with a pillow during the night in an act of mercy before lifting the tub room control panel that McMurphy could not lift earlier, throwing it through a window, and escaping the hospital. All right, so that's how the novel ends. Um, I thought it was it was interesting that when they bring McMurphy in, at first they all think it's not even him. They're right. like, this isn't him. This is a fake. Mm-hmm. Even when they see the tattoos, they're like, those are faked. Yeah, his but then face I think was, they slowly realize it is him. I think his face <laughs> was swollen um, yeah. because of the surgery and that kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, it, the 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 idea that they couldn't believe that their their beacon would, would be defeated in any way and then ultimately was... Um, was disheartening to some of them for sure. But that, that was it for Bromden. He, he just made the decision to end his life. And I think how, what we know of McMurphy probably wouldn't have wanted to live in that state anyway. Um, but it's dark, man. It's a dark ending for sure. I mean, yeah, it's dark. It's dark for McMurphy, but I guess Bromden is, is sort of saved by his sacrifice. Right. Um, he's been given his strength back. He's able to break through the glass and, and leave. 
Um, and then one of the things he talks about is how he wants to go see his 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 people who have been um, pushing back against the man, you know, society, and and um, where this dam has been built along the Columbia River, and like they're still like fishing there or something, even though they're not supposed to be, and they have huts or something. Like I don't know, it, it's you know, it's 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 all being tied to the idea of like not letting the government control you, I guess, which like um, ties into the whole combine thing is like a microcosm of government. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I, I can see that. And, and uh, that's what he wants to go see. But then he also is thinking that he may have to flee to Canada, but first he wants to see the Columbia river gorge again, which he's been dreaming about, you know, over and over again, which, you know, is literally a 30 minute drive away from where I am right now. I can go drive down the Columbia river gorge and it is, one of the most beautiful places in the entire country. So I, I get it. And I think it's cool that, that he, ta- he shouts it out so much because it is, it is astonishing. <laughs> and I can get that. I can get that uh, urge to just want to go check it out. Yeah. When I was Absolutely. there, I think you, you made sure we, we went out of our way a little bit to drive through there. Yeah. A piece of it. I know it, it's a, it's pretty long mm-hmm. there's a lot of it, but that you get to see a part of it that has the Multnomah falls. And, and uh, I think we, do we go to hood river? We might've gone all the way up to hood river. I couldn't tell you. Yeah, I think we may have swung by Hood River. Uh, he talks about the Dalles a lot, which we did not get out to. But when um, my wife and I were coming in from Florida, we drove through the Dalles. So I've been there, too. Um, yeah, it's just interesting, like, knowing all these areas he's talking about. Yeah. He's talking about the man from Beaverton at one point, which I think is hilarious. This is someone who's living in Portland. Uh, this is like a suburb of Portland. Mm-hmm. And the man from Beaverton. They talked yeah. about Portland uh, a decent amount, too. Yeah, they sure did, yeah. So it's very Oregon-heavy. I, really, I, I will say, like, I also felt scared for bromden because they're coming after him for murder now right because he's the one who's missing after somebody's been killed um and he he's not leaving the country immediately so he's going to you know his home which like if if that's easily traceable that's pretty that's pretty scary because i feel like people might know oh maybe he'll go home and then they could chase him there but i like to think he got away and got to canada or whatever he needed to do Mm -hmm. yeah maybe yeah, I mean that's that's the rosier image. You know what's funny is uh, last episode you brought up the the white savior situation, and I kind of poo pooed it. Mm-hmm. But that's totally what we get here it with, is, yeah. with Bromden, right? It's Bromden being saved by a white man. I feel like I had brought know? in the baggage of the movie, and maybe maybe like started to say that a little bit before I should have. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, and I am excited to watch this film, which um, we're going to be watching uh, next week. Um, I I want to. I don't know. Like I'm, I'm worried, but I'm also hopeful that maybe through some changes, they could get rid of some of the baggage that, that to me is weighing the book down. Um, I think that this is a potential to be one of those films where maybe I'll like it more, which we've, we've encountered a few times. Maybe I'll find this to be the better version. Um, I don't know. I've never seen it. So if you want to find out what I think, come back next week when we cover it. I, I think the idea of like, I like the metaphor, yet it, it is it is troubled and confused with the conflation of manliness and freedom and all that. I think we've, we've said it over and over again. Right. So I don't think there's anything left to say. That's where I'm left with this novel. Like, I don't know that I like this novel. And I'm, and I'm sad to say it because there are, there's a lot to like in here. Um, but this is such a problem for me that it was constantly pulling me out of it and making it difficult to enjoy. You know what I like about this story, um, is the premise, the idea behind it. I like a lot of what went on. I like the idea of sort of bringing attention to things that needed, that people weren't thinking about. 
governments, yeah. the treatment of, of the mentally ill, that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely but, that. Yeah. But yeah, it got muddied up for sure with with a lot of the other stuff. So I think the if if somebody told me the premise, I'd be like, oh, that sounds great. And then, you know, just seeing yeah. the, the all of the other stuff in here um, yeah. soured it a little bit for me. But I'm really excited to get to the movie. I, I, I think it's going to be a fun watch. Yeah, and you mentioned Danny DeVito's in the movie yeah. last week, which I didn't know. Yeah. Uh, so all I knew is Jack Nicholson's in it. That was literally the only person I know about it's in great, this movie. It's a great so, cast. We'll, we'll definitely talk yeah. about them. I assume he's McMurphy, um, but other than that, I, I know very, very little. I don't know who Danny DeVito would be, but I'm like, I was like trying to figure out, like, is he Harding? Is he, like, I don't know. He's I mean, not Bromden. curious to see. He's not Bromden. He's not, well, yeah, he's not Bromden. <laughs> okay. I, you know, I hope not. <laughs> uh, do you want me to tell you who he is, or do you want to just see I'll just I'll just see. I guess I'll just go in and I'll and I'll experience it and 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 I'll see for myself. Um, but we spoke earlier in the episode about how we could possibly do uh, Magic Trip as a bonus episode. That is a thing we do monthly for our patrons. Um, if you wanted to check out what bonus up content we have so far, we've got like 24, 25 episodes out there. Um, check out patreon.com slash ink to film and find out what all sorts of things we're offering on there as rewards. Yeah, typically we do sort of ad- things adjacent to the projects we cover. That's sort of what we've decided to do. So yeah, any any of our projects that have anything adjacent, if there's something you you know that's connected to us, let us know and then we, we would like to cover it potentially as a bonus episode. Make sure to connect with us on social media we're on facebook twitter and instagram all of those at ink to film uh on facebook we have the council of inklings where we post polls we post which this project was decided by a poll so that we that yeah, we put was. on facebook so um facebook you know, you group can, called the council of inklings facebook group yeah so, so there's a way you can you can sort of influence what we cover and we post all sorts of adaptation news anything we find interesting that sort of pertains to books or movies And if you enjoyed this episode, please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever podcatcher you use, uh, however you listen to this podcast. Um, And if you're unable to leave a review on there, um, maybe leave a comment on our YouTube channel or a like or find us on Facebook and leave a review on there or something. Um, These are all things that helps us get the word out. Um, it's something that, you know, is very, very helpful for a internet based company like us, uh, trying to get the word out and get more listeners. Um, if you know somebody in real life who you think might enjoy the show, let them know. And thank you to Nicholas Drude for the use of our intro and outro music. All right. So that's going to be it for the book and Ken Kesey. However, we will be back next week for the film, which I know is a massive one. It is one of the few films that has won all the major categories, uh, which we just covered another one with Silence of the Lambs recently, one of the only other ones to do it. So uh, really interested to see um, what it's got and uh, excited, you know, to, to see this performance that I, I know is like iconic for Chuck Nicholson. I'm into it, man. So I'm excited. And uh, yeah, join us next week for that. But until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.